What incentive is it going to be for me to go work if you turn around and tell me that I have to hold everything I earn from my hard labor as though it belonged to you all? How does that put me right back into the problem of pure communism? Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode of Acton Line, we're bringing you the most recent edition of our Acton Lecture Series, delivered here at the Acton Building in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on November 3rd, 2023. Economists investigate the workings of markets and tend to set ethical questions aside. Theologians often dismiss economics, losing insights into the influence of market incentives on individual behavior. Dr. Mary L. Hirschfeld bridges this gap by showing how a humane economy can lead to the good life as outlined in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. This lecture was hosted in concurrence with Acton's third annual academic colloquium. This event featured a keynote address from Dr. Hirschfeld along with three panels of short paper presentations from 12 scholars on the conference theme of Thomism and economics. Dr. Mary Hirschfeld works on the boundaries between theology and economics using an approach rooted in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. She has written on economic inequality, the technocratic paradigm, the financial crisis, and the common good. She completed a PhD in economics from Harvard under the direction of Lawrence Summers and Jeffrey Williamson, and a PhD in moral theology from the University of Notre Dame under the direction of Jean Porter. Her research is on the boundary between economics and theology, culminating in her book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, from Harvard University Press in 2018. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Good afternoon. I was really uh, pleased to be invited to give this talk. Um, a little bit surprised because not all people associated with Acton have always appreciated my work, um, but some have. And uh, I'm really happy to be here to, to talk. And uh, the, the, the session this morning was completely interesting and engaging, and I might refer to it a little bit as we go. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, the title of my book is Aquinas in the Market. <clears throat> Uh, but that was because my editors wanted a sexier title than uh, a dialogue between Aquinas and neoclassical economists, which is what the book is actually more about. Um, and usually when I give talks about my book, I go straight after the difference between practical reason as understood in the economic models and practical reason as understood by Aquinas. And some of that came up, especially in Antonio's very, I don't see him, but he's here, there you are, in Antonio's um, good talk. <clears throat> but I thought since Acton Institute is associated with markets, I should actually talk about Aquinas in the market uh, today. So um, 
And the two subjects, by the way, are threaded together. So when people talk about capitalism, they're partly talking about markets, but they're often talking about the mentality that goes with it. So they overlap, and that's what makes all these conversations so challenging. Um, I do have many critical things to say about the rational choice model, um, although I think it's useful in some limited places. Um, but I'm very friendly to the uh, principles of markets themselves, and the argument of the book is I think you can use Thomistic principles to find a good account of what a market economy, how a market economy can actually serve the, the real, genuine human good. Okay. Now, it has to be Aquinas' framework and not Aquinas himself. Aquinas is a 13th century uh, scholar. Um, the insights of Adam Smith and Friedrich Hayek lay centuries in advance of him. He does not have an account of spontaneous order, which would be one of the primary virtues of market-based economies. Um, and because I think because he lacks that, uh, he, he, he just he starts with the idea that if you're thinking about the common good, you start with the ruler who directs and orders things, sort of a top-down um, argument. Uh, I'm not going to go into that here. I think you can still, I think the wise Thomistic ruler can accommodate markets and how they rule the, the, um, their society, but I'm not going to talk about that here. That said, the concern that you can't just have a market-based economy, have market be the main institution, is one that continues to haunt the church. The church still has the idea that if you're going to have a common good, you need to have a common authority. Um, in Centesimus Annus, St. Pope John Paul II says that if, if we're debating about whether capitalism is or is not a good system, he says it depends on what you mean. He says if by capitalism you understand a market economy, market economies can indeed serve the common good. It's a good thing. Um, he says, but if capitalism is understood as, quote, a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed, circumscribed within a strong juridical framework which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality, then the reply is certainly negative. This reservation <clears throat> goes pretty close to my own reservation. To the extent that capitalism unleashes an attitude towards wealth where we think more of it is always better and it's, it becomes the thing that we all care about, it, crowds, it, it corrupts and diminishes all the other goods. You end up with a very McIntyrean critique of, of, of the social order. Um, so, so the question I have is, does Aquinas have room for an account of the good of markets that does not necessarily give way to the kind of pernicious capitalism that is so often critiqued and that the church herself is worried about? Okay. So... Let's start with the places in Aquinas' thought that I, I thought you could accommodate some of the best intuitions about why markets are good. Um, I'm going to start with the small things and build up to the big one. Um, he actually does understand the division of labor. This, by the way, is not an outstanding feature of Aquinas. Pretty much anybody who breathed in the ancient world understood that it was better to have some people be carpenters and other people being bakers. Um, where it comes up in Aquinas is uh, really quite charming. He's defending voluntary poverty because he was a mendicant, and so they lived lives of voluntary poverty. Um, and this is just instructive for us who think the ancient or the you know people in the Middle Ages were benighted. The complaint was that the voluntary the voluntary mendicants weren't working, and part of the human condition is we should work for our bread. You know, we should earn our our livings, um, <clears throat> and. 
And you would think he would say something like, well, there's earning a, a living by getting your bread, but uh, we're doing these higher goods, and so you might think he would go in that direction. But he does not. He accepts the principle. It's really important for people to work for their, work for their living. Um, his, his reply, though, is not everybody works in the same way. And we have, he doesn't use the word division of labor, but he says some people do something, some people do another. That's all fine. And then the way he sneaks in the voluntary poverty of the mendicants is he says, and some people do spiritual labor. So we pray for you all, and that's part of the common good, and then we justly exchange that service in exchange for your bread. Okay. <clears throat> In order to have a division of labor, as Adam Smith will tell us, or any common sense will tell us, you have to be able to trade. You have to be able to exchange goods and services. And Aquinas takes it for granted that, of course, you're going to be exchanging for goods and services. Um, he does have questions about when the prices are just or not just. Um, <clears throat> but he basically says trade itself is fine. It's being established. Um, for the purpose of securing the common advantage of both parties in a trade. Okay, so go Aquinas. My little economist heart reading that was like, okay, I can breathe here. He's, he's letting me have some space. Okay. The second place it comes up, uh, and we're gonna wanna circle back onto this because he has more to say about it. Um, he takes up the question about whether merchants are legitimately employed doing something. They're buying low, selling high. Uh, that, that, that is the question about just prices we were talking about. Um, <clears throat> and he is going to have some critical things to say about it, which I'll come back to. But then at the bottom, and my little economist's heart was like, yeah. He said, well, look, merchants are taking things, goods, buying goods in places where they're abundant. That's why the prices are low. And they're taking them to places where they're scarce, which is why the prices are high. So that's a real service. And if they're doing that as a real service, they deserve just compensation, just the way the carpenter deserves just compensation, and it's all good. Okay, so we can expand out on that and say all the things that middlemen do, they're all providing real, they're contributing real goods, they deserve just compensation. Okay. Um, but the big place, the big, the, the big locus text where you go to say Aquinas is definitely going to give us some room for um, something like a market-based economy is when he talks about the institution of private property. Okay, <clears throat> so to cut to the chase, Aquinas is going to tell us that private property is indeed lawful. Um, to go to a distinction that was made earlier today, um, <clears throat> is private property is not specified specifically in the natural law, but humans can see that it serves the natural law and is therefore a properly a part of it. Um, so what makes Aquinas distinct, though, so far that doesn't make him very distinct. Pretty much all Christians in the centuries prior to him had said, no, we have to have private property. But they almost always made their argument as, since the fall, we're so selfish and whatever, we must have private property to keep the peace, and so on. Um, but I would argue Aquinas takes a different path, because he's a great guy. Um, I think Aquinas, I think, is going to give us an argument about private property that would obtain whether or not we were fallen. Okay, so let's, let's go ahead and do some Thomistic scholarship. So there's the text. Um, the first distinction he makes is, is when we're thinking about property, we want to think about it, let me pull out my own sheet, <clears throat> in two respects. We want to think about it in terms of who owns and manages the property, and then given that you own and manage it, how should you think about it in terms of how you use it? Okay, 
And then he says, with respect to the first, ownership and management, it is lawful to possess that private property because it's necessary for human life. So boy, oh boy, you want this institution um, for three reasons. Okay. I'm going to work backwards. The third reason, um, because a more peaceful state is ensured to man if each one is contented with his own. Basically, fences make better neighbors, that kind of an argument. That is an argument that we're fallen. We're just too cantankerous to get along without some, this is yours, this is mine. Otherwise, we'd fight all the time. Okay. It's that second reason that makes me want to cry. Okay. I'm going to read it. <clears throat> Secondly, because human affairs are conducted in more orderly fashion, if each man is charged with taking care of some particular thing himself, whereas there would be confusion if everyone had to look after any one thing indeterminately. So, you could imagine trying to live a world with common property, and the problem here is we'd all get up in the morning, and since we're imagining a state where we're not fallen, we'd say, let me go and work for the common good, and we would have no idea where to go or what to do, and nothing would happen. Okay, so private property is this great institution that let me, lets me know that this patch of land is mine, and I'm going to go and figure out what is best suited for that land and grow it there. And you're going to have your land and figure it out. And you can hear all of the economic wisdom being able to be built out on top of those basic principles. I'm going to specialize, get really good at it. I'm going to be motivated to care of it because I know about it. I know it really well. And this is all for the better. OK. That clearly, then, would give us a reason to have private property, even if we were all saints, even if we were all perfectly virtuous. Okay. But then the question is, what about that first reason? Okay. The first reason that you want to have private property is because every man is more careful to procure what is for himself alone than that which is common to many or to all. Since each one would shirk the labor and leave to another that which concerns the community, as happens when there is a great number of servants. So I know about that because whenever we're at Thanksgiving dinner and it's time to do the dishes, I'm usually elsewhere. Um, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> is that a because we're not virtuous argument, or is that even, or is that an argument that would obtain even if we were virtuous? You might say, well, we're greedy bastards. Sorry for the language. We're, we're just greedy, and so to motivate us to work, you got to give us some incentives. And of course, the economists go, there's the incentive motive, right? And then we have to debate whether that is or is not a part of virtue, which I'm going to argue maybe not. Greed doesn't seem like it's part of virtue. Okay. But there's a problem with, if you want to read this, is just greed is good because it motivates us to work, and we get good results from it. Okay. And the problem is with that second whole way of looking at private property. Because the second aspect under which you want to look at private property is with respect to use. And there, with respect to use, men ought to possess external things not as their own, but as common, so that to wit, they are ready to communicate them to others in their need. Okay. This was like maybe the most important, well, there's been important moments in my life. This is the most important moment in my academic life. I'm trying to write a paper as a graduate student for Gene Porter on Aquinas and private property. And I'm thinking, I've got this. I'm an economist. I know Aquinas. So I just postponed writing the paper. It's the night before the paper. I sit down. I'm blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, I'm going, wait a minute. 
Do you guys see my problem? How on earth does that first reason work? We need incentives in order to get us to work. Work, if the reason I'm going to hold it is I'm going to turn around and give it to all of you anyway. Do you see my problem? What incentive is it going to be for me to go work if you turn around and tell me that I have to hold everything I earn from my hard labor as though it belonged to you all? How does that put me right back into the problem of pure communism? Okay. That was a long night. <laughs> and I think I finally, at 4 o'clock in the morning, emailed Jean and said, you're not getting a paper tomorrow. Uh, tried to go to bed, tossed and turned. And then at 6 o'clock in the morning, the sun comes up and the light has fallen upon me. Um, and the answer is Aquinas is thinking about that desire to take care of yourself, that proper motivation, in a different way than we moderns would. So as an economist, if you, I read that first one as we always want to get as much as we can. That gives me a motivation to work hard so I can make a lot of money. Okay. That's not actually in Aquinas' world. Um, what I do usually spend a lot of time talking about with Aquinas is he's very, very clear that wealth is an instrumental good. And a truly virtuous person would recognize that, yes, I need wealth to sustain myself, maintain my family, and, and, and also live becomingly. This is not a bare bones thing. Um, but I would have an idea about what good life I want to live and what, how material wealth would serve that. And that answer, whatever it is, would be necessarily finite. So the idea would be, I am living my life as a single professor of theology and business ethics at Notre Dame. There's a certain standard of living that is becoming to me. And that means I need X number of dollars. Okay. And if Notre Dame in its kind generosity offers me X plus more, that's nice. But that money is the money that is abundant to me. I do not need it. And if I'm truly virtuous, I really don't think I need it. It's like giving me water, right? So I'm just more than happy to share it with other people. And if we take that route, that first reason now starts to build up an anthropology that seems more genuinely Christian. God gives us stewardship of ourselves first and foremost. It's perfectly reasonable for us to be motivated to work to take care of ourselves and our own. That gets us up out of bed in the morning to tend to our field. And then some years we're blessed with a good crop. And when we are, we're happy to share, okay? All right. So because of this, I feel pretty comfortable in my book uh, giving an account about, a Thomistic flavored account about what a good market in a virtuous world would look like. Uh, and in that world, um, we would see that material goods are good because they serve human life. And so we would be motivated to, A, take care of ourselves, but also to take care of our neighbors. So the baker gets up in the morning and thinks, I'm good at baking bread. I'm going to bake bread, feed my family, and then I'm going to feed my neighbors. So I'm going to be really interested in making good bread for people. Um, but I need to make a living, so they're going to want just compensation so they can take care of other things. Uh, but they're going to let that money be a servant of the good that they're pursuing. So they're going to see the primary good as the work they're doing for the community and for themselves. Uh, and then money helps support that. The virtuous firm, likewise, sets up their business with the first primary intent being to provide particular goods and services to the community that are of value. Okay, and then to marshal the resources to make that happen, to create a workplace where workers can exercise their skills and talents, which is part of developing human flourishing. Um, and again, but again, in this world, 
prices and markets play a really good role. Um, and in particular, they serve as signals about what the community actually values, right? I always like to use this example with my students. I could be sitting there in my bedroom thinking, God has given me this great and holy talent. I have a vocation to provide the world with the most beautiful handcrafted togas that anybody has ever seen. So I could set up my business to give you guys these beautiful handcrafted togas. And the price signals would tell me very quickly that this was not, in fact, of value to the community. And it might persuade me to think a little bit more about Go Irish t-shirts. OK. <laughs> OK. Um, so. And the profit signal itself, um, a good, healthy firm that's serving the community should be making profits. It can use that to reinvest if it's a, you know, if it's a valuable thing. So the, um, the mechanics of capitalism that we like, where we have an incentive to kind of keep going, would still be there in the Thomistic, in the Thomistic version. Okay. The key thing in all of this is money would always be a servant. Prices and markets would always be a servant of those higher goods. All right. Y'all happy about my happy market? Okay, I want to go live there. Um, of course, we don't live in a virtuous world. And the first thing to say is the markets will not serve their best functions. We can talk about whether they're still good, and they probably are still good. But, but their good is going to be less than what it could be to the extent that we're not virtuous. Um, we live in an economy, uh, in a world, in a culture that thinks more wealth is just better. Um, this problem is called pleonexia. More and more and more is just a good thing. It's been around the human condition forever. People always object. It's not like it's a modern problem. It is not a modern problem. When Aquinas is talking about the various things people might mistake for happiness, wealth is first on his list for a reason. Um, Aristotle, the same, all the ancients, they knew that pleonexia was a thing. The difference is that in our modern culture, we no longer think it's a vice. We just don't tend to see it as a vice. Um, so we're more prone to thinking making money for its own sake is a good thing. And right away, you should be able to see the Thomistic problem with that. Money is an instrumental good. When you treat it as the ultimate end, it's the, whole, it's, it's the tail wagging the dog. Everything is just out of kilter. Um, you're going to end up with people rationally thinking that they should give up their life dream to be a teacher because they're not making enough money. Right? So giving up the things that they really want in the service of money, there's all sorts of corruptions that happen this way. Because um, I have eight minutes left, I will not give you my eight-minute speech about how, how, how ubiquitous this is and how corrupting it is all the way through. Um, what I will say quite briefly is Aquinas does talk about right relations with wealth when he talks about the virtue of liberality and, its vi and the corresponding vices of covenants on one side and prodigality on the other. And, and I would argue that our relationship with money is that of the covetous person. We always just want more. We, we prioritize it over other things that matter. Um, and he will argue, and I think this is right, the covetous per <coughs> covetousness has a bunch of daughter vices. Once you start seeing as things, money is the most important thing, at a minimum, you're going to be insensitive to the needs of others. So you're not really going to exercise your wealth the way a good Christian should by sharing with those in need. Um, we can leave aside the Peter Singer problem, but even, even the kind of charity that any Christian should, should engage in is going to be a lot harder for the covetous person. Okay. And it's just not too far down the road where you're kind of cutting a corner here, committing a fraud there. Right? All those kinds of corruptions will spring up. <clears throat> okay. I could add that in a covetous society, we're going to have a hard time finding any idea about economic justice that is meaningful. 
Um, and to the extent that you think that environmental sustainability is a problem, if we think more is always better, we're going to blow right through all those boundaries. I could go on a lot. This is not an insignificant problem. Okay. And I think it helps us to understand these debates about capitalism. The people who like capitalism see that it promotes wealth and flourishing and it lifts a lot of people out of poverty and they're right. But the people who don't like it see that it's causing us to worship basically money as an idol, subordinate human goods to it, and, it's cause, and that it's causing a lot of corruptions. They want to blame the whole thing on markets and they forget the goods that markets do, but at a very minimum, it means markets are not serving the good nearly as well as they could or should be. Okay, so, <clears throat> all right. So you could make a story saying Aquinas has a good account of markets. We don't live in a virtuous society. We should try to work on making the society more virtuous, which at the end of the day is where I'm going to end up. Um, but, <clears throat> but there's a dip, more difficult problem before we get to that. And that is market trade itself might cultivate a faulty relationship to wealth. Okay. So Aquinas, uh, economists like to think that money should be a veil we always care about the real value of goods underneath. Money is just an instrument that allows us to trade or so on. But we inevitably reify money and take it as an end of itself. Um, so Aquinas' hint of this problem is in that question on the merchants. Um, I just gave you the last couple sentences from it. Oh, I was supposed to make this go away because we're not, we don't care about that anymore. Um, he says, look, Merchants are kind of a suspect class. We can think of them as modern-day capitalists. They buy low and they sell high. Uh, and what's wrong with that is um, they may or may not be doing that. We can ask about whether that's compatible with justice or not. He says the problem is they're treating monetary gain as the end of their activity. Okay? So the doctor who heals somebody and then makes a good living by it is doing something real. But the person who's just looking for money for money's sake is is pursuing a bad end. And he says, the problem with this end is it's unlimited. I could be a millionaire, 10 millionaire, 100 millionaire, a billionaire. Now I could be a 10 billionaire. It just keeps going on forever. It invites us to a conception of life that has this boundless material end that, as Antonio says, scatters our attentions, makes it hard for us to live that kind of integrated good life. And it's at the root of the covetousness that, that corrupts the economy. And it's right there in trade. There's just a temptation with money because it's abstract and because it's the kind of thing that you can count that tempts us to think that more of it is better. Okay. Basically what I'm saying in an abbreviated form is that money is a prime candidate for idolatry. It's just begging to be mistaken for God. We have a desire for the infinite good that is God. And this money sure looks like it's gonna deliver the infinite good. More of it is always better. I could, you know, I can get closer to my total happiness by getting more of it. Um, money gives me control over things. God has control over things. It just, it's just a complete contender for idolatry. And it seems to be built into the market mechanism. So both Aquinas and Aristotle root the temptation towards planexia is in the device of money. Okay. Um, one thing we can do is just say, well, we know that's there, and we're just going to do this big campaign to try to reclaim better versions of understanding what happiness really is, what the good life really is, try to remind people that money, wealth is instrumental. And, and I do that all the time in the classroom and in most of my talks. Um, but I do think Aquinas offers us some other resources 
that can help try to shift a culture that's always going to be flirting with the temptation of the idolatry of money. Because uh, we want to keep the market part, because it does all these good things. Um, <clears throat> okay. this, I'm borrowing this from um, Charles Taylor. I've gotten really, really uh, kind of obsessed with the idea of the modern social imaginary, the background imagination we have about how the world works. And so what I want to say is Aquinas gives us two things that kind of contest the modern social imaginary. Okay. Um, the first bit of resistance is actually in his teachings on private property. The, the one I showed you is whether we can privately own property. But right before that, he asks, how can we own property in common given that it all belongs to God? And in that framing of it, we're reminded that God has created the world and it's properly his, and that he gives us ownership of it in a qualified sense for the purpose of serving our human material needs, keeping body and soul together. Um, so if we remember that private property is meant to serve that end of serving our material needs, um, it can help us think a little bit better about private property. Aquinas himself nowhere gives anything like a John Locke argument about why private property uh, is a licit thing. John Locke is going to say, I own my body, I own the work I do with my body, therefore I own whatever I mixed my labor with. I assume that's a pretty familiar argument. And notice, by right, by a hard-held right, that's mine. Aquinas does not talk about how we got that property in any way like that. For him, a society recognizes that private property is a really good institution for ordering human affairs and serving our economic needs well. Okay, Who owns what is not... I almost want to say it's a matter of indifference to him. The society can figure out how to allocate those fields, however they do. But that means that I understand that my right to the property is grounded in the community's need for what I produce with it. Do you see? It's just tempering as a matter of social imagination. Now, I do want to say the tradition itself has brought in some of Locke's insights. So Rerum Navarum has passages that sound an awful lot like John Locke. And uh, St. Pope John Paul II has continued that language. There is something to the intuition that if I did work, I deserve something. That's the American social imaginary. There is something to it um, that does seem proper and fitting, right? More than just a random distribution of property and let things go from that point of view. The only thing that's added, though, is if you just still understand, just to lighten up that sense of ownership, right? Just to lighten it up. Yes, my, I have a claim to the property that's kind of grounded in the work I did. The work I did was itself rooted in God's gift to me. It itself is one of the talents that's meant to serve the community. Um, and maybe I should think about my private property less as a right and more as a responsibility to use things well and to steward things well. And the church, both Protestant and Catholic, has a well-developed tradition of stewardship as the economic ideal here. And I think we want to revitalize that as much as we can. So I'm going to go into overtime. Um, to say my last point. Um, I don't know if anybody's read my book or not. I spent a lot of time on something that seems really theologically obscure. Uh, and that has to do with the language you used to talk about God, whether it's univocal or equivocal or analogical. And people are like, what the hell? <laughs> there is method to my madness. This is like, this is one of those points that to me is like, the pin of the whole structure, but it's hard to communicate to people how important it is. But to try to simple it up real quickly, um, for Aquinas, you have, if, if we're trying to think about human desire, we desire the infinite good in God, and then we have our desires for earthly things. Okay. Um, 
How do we understand the relationship between the two? How do we understand our desire for God and the beatific vision and our desire for a good life in this world right now? Um, and if we use these other forms of language about God, we would end up having a picture of God where God is some other thing and the world is over here doing its own thing. And they would be kind of separate issues, which is more or less how we live. Okay. And that's the world where the idolatry of money is so tempting. Because if I'm just looking at the world, but I still actually have this infinite desire, but God is over here is something that I'm not thinking about. That infinite desire is going to get poured out into the thing that looks most like God, and that's going to be money. Okay. Aquinas' vision is that there's an analogical relationship, and I do think this is the loveliest thing I've ever heard. The goods in this life are really, really good. Family, the tree that's blooming or shedding its leaves out front, um, they're all really good because everything that's good in this world reflects the only thing that's really good, which is God. God created the world, and because God is good, the world is good because it reflects God. There's nothing else. There's no other source of goodness. And it's an invitation to just slow down. Slow down and notice that that sandwich we just had for lunch was a really good sandwich. Okay? And, and there's something in that nourishing and sustaining that says something about who God is in our lives. There's a theological meaning buried in everything. And that slowing down notice makes us look at the actual real good and go, that's really good. And if I'm looking at the actual good going, wow, that's really good, I might not be so quick to think, and how can I get more? Okay. So in a, in a weird kind of irony, we overvalue wealth a lot. We radically undervalue the real goods that are around us. Um, the other place that this goes is for this reflection idea to work is you have to appreciate the diversity of goods. The apple represents something of God that the orange doesn't represent. And most emphatically about us human beings, each and every one of us represents something about God that no other person on the planet can do. That should make you look at your neighbor in a totally different way. Okay. The diversity matters. And what does money do? Money completely asks me to make everything fungible, to flatten it all out into one abstract value. It deflects me. And it seems to me the more I look at the world, we get, and this came up in the first paper, which I loved, um, we're floating around with all these quantitative abstractions, these abstract ideas, and of course we're starving to death because the real good is in the actual real apple right in front of you. So I think we should go into the trenches to try to save capitalism by trying to convert people back to God. Um, and I will leave it to you to do that, and I will stop with four minutes over time so you have some time for questions. Thank, thanks to uh, Dr. Hirschfeld for her talk. Let's slow down and appreciate her for a moment before we begin questions. But then, because we went a little over time, let's speed up a little bit the asking of our questions. And uh, that's the balance we'll strike. Um, Sam, could you get that gentleman over there? Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Uh, thank you for your talk and for your book and for your career. Um, there has been some research in the science of human flourishing lately about appreciation and how people that take time to be thankful, it actually changes the way they see the world. So I'd, I'd love to see more of that. Um, the question I have is that is, have you seen, or has anyone here seen research that shows that people who do live their life for God, that do live a life of grace, and that, so the natural human desire for the infinite, if it is being fulfilled in this life through that relationship with God, 
is the research that shows that people that do that live economically differently from people who don't have that in their life? That I can't answer. I don't know. Uh, with, I'm not the hugest fan of, let's, can we do a study and show? But it's, it's, it's valuable. Um, so that would be a good thing to do. I can say in my own life it made a radical difference. Um, and obviously see it in, in, in the saints. The saints clearly have a much smaller material footprint. And they also seem to have an incredible amount of joy that comes out of it. So St. Teresa of Calcutta um, would be a, a classic example of that. Um, I always try to sell it to people by saying, you know, I've been doing this for 15 or 20, a long time now. And I, I'm a prayerful person, so it's all part of my prayer. Being liberated from the idea that I just need another 10% raise has been like a miracle for my own personal flourishing. Um, it just, it means among other things that when I walk into my house, I'm happy every day because it's just the greatest house. It's not, not going to go in any magazines. It's not the biggest house. It's not the fanciest house. But it serves my needs really well, and I'm grateful. So I have a lot more room for gratitude. I, I was free to decide on where I want to go and work and why because no, I, nobody can tempt me with money at this point because I have enough. I just, um, so I can preach my own experience, but it would be interesting to see a full study. The caveat is how do you measure this real faith? Because there's a lot of professing Christians who, in fact, have a divided life, a lot of them. So I'm not, I'm not sure you'd see it in the studies. Oh, we'll let him ask. Uh, thank you for your talk. I, I love hearing everything um, uh, strongly from a biblical perspective there. I thought that was powerful. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. I, I wanted to know if you could expand just a little bit. You only mentioned briefly uh, Aquinas' thinking on, on the environment. So uh, uh, what would he think about the uh, ecological footprint and uh, the kind of resources I think of, you know, uh, kind of the economic idea of externality, like when, it's, when, when that's mm -hmm. going on, whether it's today's world, plastic pollution or biodiversity loss or things like that. What would, what would you think he might say? Yeah. I'm not aware of any place where he takes on environmental problems just because they were still in the Middle Ages. and Actually, actually they were having them, but just not in the same way that we would see them. Um, this was part of the part where I was going to do my eight-minute discussion of how money corrupts everything. That would be a big place where it does. Once we've commodified everything, I think the only thing that matters is money. We're not going to attach value to things that can't be measured in money. We're going to forget the beauty and grace of nature. It's not surprising, then, that we don't have any problem with just blowing right through it. Um, I'm not always uh, simpatico with the way Pope Francis goes about things, but I think Laudato Si has really compelling and moving things to say about uh, seeing the world through the lens of creation, remembering the, you know, our relationship of nature, remembering that it's a gift from God, a sign of God, and all these things would help to temper our worst impulses in the modern world. Hello, thank you. Uh, this is a good plenary address, I think, is my first one. Uh, so the best you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much as a question, though I can try to come up with one, but like if markets are not serving the good, right? And I'd like to try to apply what you said to like current events, which is like, you know, there's a lot of inflation going around, right? And so I would say that like deflation is when you mistake probabilistic effect for parabolic effect. So like President Biden is using the Kuznets curve a lot, but indeed it's uh, 
it's it's a monetary curve uh, with price and interest rates where it'll mm -hmm. go back up, I think. So my question would be, uh, like, uh, what what do you think about trade security in terms of solvency? Okay, I tend to stay away from particular questions. Uh, really in anything, because it's more about the general framework. So I would want to pick up that issue and look at it through this lens, but I haven't done it, so I can't answer it off the top of my head. Um, it does seem to me, there's a weird thing, I just don't understand the economy anymore. I mean, I really was an economist once upon a time. <laughs> we really do think that if you just print money, you can, if you, you can just print money and create value somehow. And I, I so, we have spent money like drunken sailors, especially during the COVID thing, and we somehow imagine that there will be goods that will, you know, rise up to meet all that money. I, I just don't understand why people thought that was ever reasonable or not, you know, maybe it was something you had to do, but like, I just don't understand why people don't understand that if you print a lot of money, you're going to have inflation. So maybe I'm an old-fashioned, outdated economist. Um, but that's an economic economist responding, not an Aquinas responding. Um, the market on its own terms doesn't seem to be working the way it used to, and I don't, I don't get it. You young whippersnappers are ruining the world. I don't know how that happened. Thank you. Um, I had a question about uh, Aquinas and his view of liberality and giving out of uh, abundance, um, and I hope I represent him correctly. But he understood like there's those goods that are necessary for our very existence, and those then those goods that are necessary for our station in life. Mm -hmm. And obviously, in that time, I'm assuming there's not a lot of economic mobility as far as if you were born to the son of a cobbler, you had a pretty good understanding of your station in life the whole time. Mm -hmm. But in a modern economy where people can rise and fall through stations of life, how do we understand those goods that are necessary for our station in life? like? Is it based off of our parents? Like, is it based off of what we are at 25? Like, how do we yeah. kind of incorporate that with some elements of flexibility so we don't, like, completely nullify the concept but also understand how it shifts into a different modern, modern economy? Yeah, no, that is an amazingly good question because you're putting your finger on one of the elements in our modern world that makes it really, really hard for us to have the relationship with wealth Aquinas is describing. He does have a socially static society, and in that society, it's really clear what the baker is appropriate to the baker. It's just crystal clear. So there's a lot, and although I will say they backed it up. They had sumptuary laws back then so that you could not consume above your station to kind of keep the order of things. So we moderns, we're democratic. We have to like the fact that people can move. We have to like that. And the question is, well, the problem is, if we just think that, we come to think that status in life has to do with how much money you have, and then you live, a then there's never ever gonna be in a gap, right? I, I, I do well, I prosper, that raises me up in rank and my needs go right along with it. Um, and by the way, this explains why we very, very rich Americans feel so strapped, right? Because what we think we need goes right up with what we are earning. That's the real, so is there a way to go back to the Thomistic principles, but allow for some kind of mobility. It would take a radical increase in virtue. But you could imagine somebody whose question again is, I'm not pursuing status, I'm pursuing my actual vocation. And maybe my actual vocation, even though I was born to people who are peasants, my vocation is to be a doctor. So I, and because we're now gonna have mobility, I work my way through and I become a doctor. 
Then I arrive at the station of doctor, which socially is recognized by having a higher standard of living. Um, but you've answered your call, and then you settle in that station and you and inhabit that. Um, our difficulty is that, just, again, we've gotten, you know, like I, I've arrived to this class neighborhood. If I work a little bit harder, do a little bit more, I can get into the next one and the next one. So that's how I think about it. In, uh, in Rerum Navarum, um, Leo the 13th, he says uh, that, that for the family, for the sake of the family, um, it, it's good to, to pursue uh, capital resources that are productive, productive capital, mm -hmm. right? And this is, a, this is something that has, um, the, the, the face of productive capital has, has changed since the Industrial Revolution, um, just dramatically, right? So we have um, most people, their, their most productive capital is their intellectual capital at this point in the game, right? Um, so what do you think Aquinas would say about, um, you know, the, our idea of productive capital? And because this, is, this kind of ties in with the, the last, last question too. Like, mm -hmm. So how much, how much productive capital is reasonable for because and, and 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 then also addressing the other side of like well most people actually don't even have productive capital outside of their intellectual capital so mm -hmm. so in, in many sense in in, in some sense uh, uh, we're we're pretty poor, we're a poor nation uh, because we don't have real capital you know <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's 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 a complex idea but no it is. Um... I find myself thinking more and more and more about what would it mean to rethink all, think through all of this in light of our spectacular abundance. Most of our intuitions about the economy are founded on, a, on an idea of really a radical scarcity, right, where there's a real sense of necessity. And obviously, many people around the world still live in that world. We, on the other hand, live in a world where people thought you could stop working for two years and everything would be fine. Um, so, like, the, the, don't even get me started on the response to the COVID pandemic. <laughs> but what people didn't notice is it would have been unthinkable in the past because nobody could have afforded to do it. And then when we imposed it on countries that couldn't afford to do it, we inflicted a great deal of harm, a huge amount of harm. Um, so your question goes to that. Like, I think the primary model of work, and certainly what Aquinas had, is you've got land. That's the productive resource. And then there's lots of good arguing that you know, we should make sure everybody has you know, 40 acres and can do their thing. Um, and even people like, that idea persisted late into the 18th century. 18th century. Um, people thought America would never become an industrial nation because we had all that land and every worker would obviously know that they would rather have their own independent productive asset than sell their labor to a factory. Um, how and why they got that wrong would be an interesting thing to inquire into. So, but then we knew to the model where then you have shares and capital, and that still is in the mix. And I, I just don't know how much. Um, how much do people rely on their income from their shares in the, in the capital? But once you move to where my main source of wealth, which certainly is true, it's whatever people value this at, which is something. I don't know why. Um, I'm still depending on somebody to hire me. 
uh, and give me a platform. So I would just, I, I, I think you're asking a really good question. It's the one I want to, it's the kind of question I want to ask next, but I haven't waited out there to figure out what, yeah, what is the meaning of work in a world like this? I don't know. Thank you very much for your talk. I thought it was really fabulous. And where it left me thinking at the end is, and this is a thought experiment I'll sometimes do with my students. Imagine a world where there is no scarcity. We have everything we need in abundance. Mm -hmm. And now the quest is really for virtue. Have we solved the core proposition that causes us to corrupt money and goods and services? Or are we not in the very same place but just with our focus on something different. I'm, I'm curious, because yeah. couldn't we, in a sense, commoditize virtue? Couldn't the, pro, couldn't the effort, and I don't mean in strict <laughs> theological terms here, I'm talking about living it out. You talked about fungibility and currency and sameness, mm -hmm. and people living divided lives. I, I hope I'm not guilty of you know casting stones here, but I know a lot of people who are pursuing the life of virtue but fit that very description. Mm -hmm. And it's not virtue, but it's a parroted or I idolized version of virtue that really consumes their attention. I'm just curious what your response is to that proposition and maybe what insights Thomas Aquinas might have. Okay, so I'm not picking up whatever mental images in your brain formulating the question, and we, but I do have these two responses. Um, the idea that we have met all of our needs or so on and now we can stop working so much and have time devoted to other things. Um, that used to be, everybody understood that that's exactly how economic life would go. If we ever got rich enough to stop working, we'd stop. I mean, the whole Greek system was, ba they outsourced the labor to the slaves exactly to free up their time for these higher pursuits. Um, we don't like the slavery part, long story. <laughs> But by the time you get to like the 1920s, uh, John Maynard Keynes is saying, you know, not right now, but I think in a few generations, we're gonna hit that mark. And now everybody can be like Aristotle. Um, but will people be ready to be Aristotle and what are they gonna do? That's a big, and you know, that would be an interesting question to pursue, except for it turns out we did not go there. We did not stop working. Um, Instead, we have continued to work. And, and this goes back to the question about how do we make sense of this affluent economy? Um, we have found other things to do productively. Are we doing that because we think the goods we're getting from them are really important or because we're just actually stuck in this habit of maximizing means? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm lazy. I'm really lazy. I would be really in favor of a world where we worked half as hard as we do uh, and spent more time, you know, smelling the roses. But... That's just me. Hi, and thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm really curious what your thoughts would be if, if Aquinas was in some small rural Indiana town, sort of formerly Rust Belt. It's economically deprived, and and people are struggling, out of work, factories are closed. What 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 do you think he would say to sort of rural, lower income people? who are trying to figure out their aspirations for wealth as a means of social mobility out of, out of struggle. Yeah. So again, he can't contemplate that because he's in a relatively static economy, right? The villages are up and running, although he's 
He's writing two generations in front of the Black Death, which is going to do a lot of that destabilizing for him. So I, I just never want to pretend that I'm channeling Aquinas. Me sitting right here working out of Thomas, Thomas's principles as I understand them. Um, to me, this is the big challenge of modern capitalism, and I don't know how to solve it perfectly well. There might be very, very good reasons that serve the common good for those factories to relocate to places where they're more productively employed, but they do it by destroying a community. Um, and we're supposed to think that those communities matter a lot. So do the departing firms have some obligation to help put something in place behind them? I don't know. Um, I, th I think it has to be right, though, that if the town has been devastated, there's no more meaningful work to be done there. People have to move because humans have to work. Um, so, but it, it, I would view it as one of the costs of a global market economy, that it, it, it requires these kinds of dislocations. And I think we need to be attentive to, is there any way to ameliorate, soften, make better, or even maybe ask, like, yeah, it would have been more profitable to move the factory, but could you afford to stay there anyway? Maybe they could, um, that kind of thinking. And more on a case-by-case -case basis. It's like there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer. I'm curious. You mentioned Christian stewardship, the life of the steward in kind of secular terms, modern terms, we think of it as time, talent, treasure. Mm -hmm. I personally don't like those terms, right? Okay. Humility, responsibility, and joy. What's lacking in our, in our ability as a society today, in your opinion, it's more of a sociological mm -hmm. question. When we look at why is stewardship so challenging? Is it because we've elevated money in the, in the role of God and, and, and that component of our pursuits comes after we're, we're at a certain level? Can you maybe comment on the, that stewardship life? Yeah. Um, I think it's hard for Christians to fully live out a Christian vision in the modern world because that social imaginary is in there whether you like it or not. Um, and it makes things like effective altruism seem tempting to us. Um, we do over-prioritize the, the stuff, which means like, and we think the primary exemplar, I mean, the word charity even, it's what Aquinas would have called almsgiving. But charity is me loving you as my fellow in God's communion, right? You're, you've been created by God. I admire everything he's showing of himself for you, right? Um, and because we're all collectively busy working more than we need to be to maintain these standards of living that are more than we need, and that covetousness just haunts us because we're in a society. Um, so I think we misread how charity should work because we're in that world. I, I can give one example. I don't know if this is the best example. I had a, when I was, God is so good. He converted me into a Dominican parish. So Aquinas was right there on the stained glass window calling me forward. Uh, and it was also a live parish, which in the Roman Catholic world is not something to be taken for granted. Um, so a lot of faith, a lot of passion. Um, we had this super shy, kind of unconfident woman who was the, part, you know, the secretary for the parish. And somehow God woke her up in the middle of the night and said, here's what you need to do. He says, you need to start running, we need to run a soup kitchen, but we're going to do it differently. 
We are going to turn the parish hall every week on Friday into basically a dining experience. We're going to put down tables with tablecloths. The parishioners are going to act as waiters and waitresses and, you know, serve, the, serve them. To, so she's thinking about the dignity of the person we're helping and bringing them into relationship or community. Um, and believe it or not, they did it. They did it. So, and this again goes back to that first paper we heard this morning. Can we think about our efforts to help people with the material goods in a way that doesn't center that? Um, I don't know if that gets to all of it. The, con the conversion towards really seeing things through God is just an ongoing process. So I'm in the process right now of teaching Calvin, even though I'm Thomas, I'm teaching Calvin to my students, which means I'm reading Calvin <laughs> for the first time. He's making my heart so full because he's got the full Christian visions. So going back to those sources and nurturing yourself on them might help bring that back to life because the Christian faith is just hard to carry out in this world. That that's going to be our last question, oh, this, this Mary. Trying and Dr. Wagner, would you do you have can you make, make, give a, give a quick Sorry, the moral framework that makes um, uh, an instrumental good money into a, the sumum bodum. Mm -hmm. um, it seems increasingly difficult. I feel older, older all the time to, to, you know, to convince a younger audience um, that that um, the life worth living is the life of virtue. So I just wonder um, if you have any advice on how to reach that audience in that way. Um, this is my true mission in life, reaching my undergraduates and trying to save at least three souls out of the classroom, if at all possible. Um, <laughs> so just for what it's worth, there's a book called Excellent Sheep by William Derishowitz that names their problem. And it, it's about how students are in this rat race trying to get ahead, do everything they're supposed to do to get ahead. Uh, and he talks about all the misery and despair that goes with it, the emptiness of their lives as a consequence of it. And so I give them that, that on day one, and they come in crying. Um, I just, I spent, and then the, the commence, uh, commencement address by David Foster Wallace, This is Water. Again, just kind of trying to break through all that chatter. Um, and I will say, because they are, in fact, starving for the good in this world, um, if you just say, you know, you're miserable, and they go, yeah, actually, I really am, it opens up room to start contemplating. Now, there's many, many, because they're always hearing everything I'm saying through the modern social imaginary. It's, it's just so much, like you say something, and then you have to unsay it just to try to, uh, it's hard work, but it's, it's the most important work, I think. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.